Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Welcome to what I am glibly calling Section 15B of our look at the book of Revelation. Since we ended up going a little bit um, over the rapture in our last session, we're going to continue in that today because one of the things that I hope that you're finding about, out about Revelation is that it's interconnected with virtually every other book of the Bible in a really astonishing degree. Over 66 books that make up our Bible, there's only one that uh, does not have a direct reference in Revelation. And I think that the only reason that Esther gets left out of that is because we haven't found it yet, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, so what we're doing with the next few sessions is that we're making sure that our background of the Bible is solid before we continue on in Revelation. I think that one of the major reasons that this book is seen as mysterious and unknowable by so many is because our biblical literacy in our churches has dived so catastrophically low that, um, that it becomes that way, just like the answers in the back of a math book. You can, you can have all these wonderful answers, but if you don't know the question and you don't know the process by which you get from the question to the answer, you're not going to grow out of it. So right now we're doing some background information to make sure that when we get back into the hard prophecy of the book of Revelation that we're well equipped to handle its challenges. But speaking of which, before we go any further, as always, when we open God's Word, we want to do so by beginning with a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, it is with all humility and devotion that we come to you now asking that you would open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to your Word, that from cover to cover we might experience the whole counsel that you have supplied for us in the Bible, that through the wisdom of your Holy Spirit that, uh, that your truth would be made known to us and that we might take it with all gravity and all, um, all due joy and all due reverence for what it is, for your word. So help us not only to absorb it as information, but through... but that through its pages we may hear your voice, we may come to have a deeper, uh, more intimate relationship with you, and that we also might put its words into practice, that the ethics that we find through it as well as the, uh, the weight of your sovereignty would be made known to us so that as we continue just to live our daily lives, we would do so with an awe and reverence for you who are our author, the author and perfecter of our faith. So please join with us now as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. May it bless us so that we might bless others in return. In the matchless name of Christ we pray, amen. So again, as we are continuing, continuing in, as John has outlined Christ's uh, organization for this book, we're getting ready to enter those things which must take place after these things, metatauta, the things that are to come to pass. And again, whatever you do, 
as Paul himself tells you, or as Luke himself tells you, writing on Paul's behest, do not believe a single word that I say, but search it out for yourself. The same way that those early Christians do claim that nobility of spirit by not taking anything that I say for granted. Claim the heritage that is the Baptist faith, which is the individual soul liberty that each of you have. Do your own homework to reinforce your faith and to give yourselves the vocabulary needed so that when you are paired with a brother or sister in the faith coming up, that you will have, you'll be fully furnished to help teach them and bring them along. Let's get into some basic definitions. There are three basic criticisms to the pre-tribulation rapture, which is the belief that I follow. And the first is that, uh, strangely enough, that the word, trib uh, excuse me, the word rapture does not occur in Holy Scripture. Well, in fact, it does several times. The word that is translated into Latin as the root word from rapture is arpazzo, which literally means to be snatched out forcibly. And as we're going to see, this, this takes place several times in Scripture. But when I say rapture, what I mean is the resurrection, the transfiguration, and the gathering of the Church of Christ universal to Christ as His bride. And that's as it's demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, so the gathering of the redeemed in the air. When, I talk, when we talk about the great tribulation or the day of vengeance of our God, we're talking about the time of judgment visited on the earth by God, specifically targeted to the unrepentant who identify their citizenship with the world. And that's described in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 70 weeks, and Revelation 6, chap chapters 6 through 19. And the thing that defines the great tribulation, the period of tribulation, is that it is God's judgment. It is the outpouring of God's wrath. Now, there are times when Christians go through a time of testing, what we might in English call a tribulation period, but that's not this one. We're not talking about something where we are being persecuted by the enemy's forces or by human mechanisms. We're talking about what John writes down for us in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 onward, where the wrath of God is visibly poured out over the unbelievers, over those who stand, who previously stood against the church and who are in open rebellion against God. When we talk about the millennium, uh, we're talking about the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. This is a time of direct political and religious rule that is given to Christ and his followers as co-regents. This is described in Revelation chapter 20, and it's characterized by a time of peace, justice, and stability upon this earth while Satan is bound, unable to have influence or sway. So this is a period where we get a taste of eternity because Christ himself is literally the king of the planet. And under his rule, the justice and the righteousness that we were always intended for, we get a, a taste of that before Satan is temporarily released and then he meets his final judgment 
and we experience all that is eternity as, uh, for, in its fullness. So when we talk about amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, I want you to know what we mean by millennial before we get into the rest of it. Uh, pre-trib, post-trib, anatrib, same thing. What does tribulation mean in all that? So are you all with me so far? With that out of the way, then let's go on to the doctrine of eminence. Eminency. Uh, what is the next great expectation for those of us who are the believers? And that is the resurrection. That is the arpazo. That is the rapture. Now, what we're told about this from, from the book of Matthew and other places is that when the church is taken out, when the church is gathered home, when the resurrection of the believers happens, it happens without qualification. There are no prerequisites for it. It could be any moment now. There is nothing to inhibit it from happening. Except one thing, we're told that it will occur when the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in. But that's a clock that we don't know, that we can't see. We suspect that, uh, I, I, I very glibly say, that uh, the enemy is in shock every time a new person gets saved because he's always wondering, is that the person? Is that the person? Is that the person? So if any of you within the sound of my voice hearing this right now are under conviction and have yet to go forward and proclaim Christ as your Savior and Lord, do it right now because you could be holding the rest of us up. But it could happen at any moment. There's no qualifications for it. Um, and we are also commanded in scriptures to expect it at any time and to long for it, but to keep working in the work of ministry with that hopeful expectation. In fact, there is a crown called the crown of righteousness, a heavenly reward promised to the individual believer who with gleeful expectation holds the second coming of Christ in their heart. Something else that we took a look at, but just by quick review, is there are seven instances where a rapturing took place. Enoch in the book of Genesis, Elijah in the book of 2 Kings, Jesus all over the place upon his ascension. Philip, once he was taken away from the presence of the Ethiopian eunuch, the Apostle Paul, when he was called into the third heaven to be taught by Christ himself, which gave him the qualifications to be a disciple and therefore apostle of Christ, the church, as, we're, as we have seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, and of course, John, when Jesus said, come up hither, and thus he did. And what's really unique about that, in those places met by the asterisk in your notes, are times when the Greek word arpazo, a.k.a. rapture, was used in Holy Scripture. It's also funny that the same people that say that rapture not being in the Bible those same people that claim that that's an argument why it can't happen are the same people that uh, will say, but the Trinity is okay even though it's not listed in the Bible. Incidentally, I do hold to the teaching of the Trinity, the three in one, three persons, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it's amazing how some people will, will go through several theological hoops to try to prove what can be seen as a very emotionally driven argument. Those who claim that the Trinity is okay, even though that word is not listed in Holy Scripture, will complain that this cannot possibly be true 
because they believe it's not in Holy Scripture, whereas, as I've just pointed out, it very much is. Now for the prophetic pattern of those seven times that someone was snatched from the earth to go into the presence of God, it only happens in instances where the person had a relationship with God and it was done either from instruction, as a reward for faithfulness, as a visible indication of the power of God. In Jesus' case, it's so that He could begin to fulfill His, uh, his uh, ministry as our great high priest and fulfillment to the promise that God gave the church in Christ. So the justified always find their shelter in God, but those who are about to be judged, as we're about to see in Jesus' own words in the book of Matthew, suffer their fate while present on the earth. Something else is we're going to talk about in the book of Revelation, those who live upon the earth. I want any time that you read that in the book of Revelation, underline it and write the word either Terran or earthling. Because that, that type of thing, when, when those who dwell upon the earth, when that phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it doesn't mean a place of locality. It doesn't mean someone who's standing on terra firma. What it actually means is it's someone who identifies their citizenship with this fallen world instead of with the kingdom of heaven. That's an important distinction. Why? Because as those who have been redeemed by Christ, we are not part of this world. We happen to be living on it, but is Jesus, well, excuse me, as the Apostle Paul says, we are here as ambassadors of reconciliation. We are royal diplomats in foreign territory. But those who dwell upon the earth, those are people who take as their identity rebellion against God. So when we talk about pre-trib, post-trib, anatrib, premillennial, all-millennial, post-millennial, these are the questions that delve into controversy. First of all, when does the church resurrect and stand in Christ's presence? That's the big question. Next, when does the tribulation occur in that timeline? And last, and probably most important of all, what kind of king is Christ? We're going to talk about that in this session. And, and some of you might be wondering, if it's a question of timeline, what difference does it make? It makes a difference because your eschatology, which is the study of the last things, determines your ecclesiology, meaning the study of the church. If you believe that this world is going straight into the flame and there's no hope for it at all, the argument that most of the people that claim that uh, pre-tribulation folks such as myself are wrong is that the church that believes such things tend to shy away from missionary activity, not the sending out of evangelists, but rather the sending out of people with the intention of bringing ministry, a ministry of compassion to a world in suffering. And in some cases that is true, but that's not the case with all of them. That is the case of a pendulum swing, because you can say the exact same thing that in the pendulum swing of those who are all millennial, those who don't believe in a literal reign of Christ upon the earth, those who don't believe in a literal millennium or in a literal return, bodily return of Christ to the earth, they tend to not evangelize. 
they tend to go wholly into missions work without telling those that are being mission, um, without telling those who are a recipient of Christ's love about Christ. So, really and truthfully, what we need to do is find a locus of balance. We need to find a place while we understand that the last things are important and we understand the truth that is set out in Scripture, we need to make sure that just because we believe that this earth will be renewed, a new heaven and a new earth that will literally come to pass, where the physical, where the natural and the supernatural come together as described in Revelation, we need to make sure that we don't stop helping those who desperately need us. And that we don't shy away from telling them that the reason that we are here, showing mercy, being charitable, offering love, is because Christ first loved us. It can't be missions or evangelism, it has to be both. So what you believe about the end things influences how you perform the ministry of your church. How you view the book of Revelation, whether you teach it or whether Worst case scenario, you completely shy away from it and don't teach it, determines the way that you see your fellow person, your fellow man. So let's make sure that when we delve into this, we don't do it with harshness, we don't do it with bitterness, we don't do it with a sense of I'm better than you, saved versus unsaved, because there but the, for the grace of God go, I. No matter how we view eternity, they still need the love of Christ. They still need the gospel of Christ. Can't be one or the other. Has to be both. Part of the reason that amillennialism came into being in the first place, and again, amillennialism, if you want to write this down in your notes, when I mention it, it's a denial of a bodily, temporal return of Christ to not only a spiritual throne, but a physical, political throne. Remember, when the angel Gabriel appeared before Mary, before, before she had Jesus, and when, she, when he said, blessed are you above women, he will inherit the throne of his father David. The throne of David did not exist at that time. It had been done away with in favor of Roman imperial rule. So there was no throne of David. That has to come in the future. To this day, there isn't a throne of David. Israel, as it currently exists, is a republic. It's a, it's a, a representative democracy. So a throne of David, a political, physical, earthbound throne that Jesus has still promised is a promise yet to be fulfilled in prophecy. One that was given by the voice of an angel on behalf of God himself. But the, 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 that kind of denial dates back to the teachings of a saint by the name of Origen, early church father from the second century into the third century. He devised, he was a very intelligent individual, and a lot of credit is due him for speaking out against the Gnostic heresies and a bunch of, of other things. But one of the things that he really loved to do for the sake of his own teaching of his disciples was to allegorize scripture. Meaning if we told a black and white story such as Jesus being baptized of, of John the Baptist, 
he would say in this instance that Jesus represents the whole of mankind who is desperately in need of a washing of their sins from them. And John is actually the outstretched arms of God the Father who through the love of Christ welcomes them into the free pardon of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection provided by the blood of Christ which watches over. In other words, it can't be just a simple story. It has to have several layers of meaning underneath the text. And he was extraordinarily good with it. Very confusing as well. But one of his disciples, later on a gentleman by the name of St. Augustine of Hippo, will use that to an nth degree and kind of, I hate to say this, but sabotage the way that the church throughout most of the world views the last days and the hope that we have. Because when Christianity was legalized in 313 with the Edict of Milan, that was Constantine, something new took place. Now back in this time, Constantine did not make Christianity, the state religion of the Roman Empire. He legalized it. He allowed us to be tolerated within its bounds. But the state religion was still the paganistic religion. And there was a class of priests, a whole sect of the society of the Roman Empire was dedicated to the priesthood of various religions. And when Theodosius I proclaimed through the Edict of Thessalonica that Christianity would now, at, this is Constantine's grandson, when he claimed that Christianity would now be the state religion, that all the paganism would be tossed out, that priestly class became Christian. They didn't necessarily convert but they went from being a priest of, uh, of Jupiter, of Pluto, of, of Mercury. They went from being a priest of all these various pagan cults and suddenly because of the person signing their paycheck had to become Christianized. And a lot of what was in the practices of the paganistic religion thus gets morphed into Christianity. So instead of having a God for this, a God for that, and a God for the other thing, you now had angels for this and that and the other thing, which had never taken place before in, in Christian theology. In fact, I hate to say it, but now there's even a thing going around that Satan was the angel of music. That is nowhere in Scripture. And as someone who is a church musician, I very much take issue with that. But a lot of the, the, the baggage of the old religions that were existing in the Roman Empire at that time gets transferred into the new state religion under Theodosius. And one of the Christian authors that rises to great prominence in that time is St. Augustine, who was a brilliant the, uh, theologian and a brilliant philosopher. And in many ways, he helped to make this transition possible by giving Christians a solid apologetic foundation to argue its case amid the rest of the, the religions in the Roman world. However, also when this took place, this gentleman, brilliant as he was, also saw that the person signing his paycheck was the same person that if he delved too deeply in Revelation, he'd have to tell them, 
that they were going to that they were the evil rulers that Christ was coming to replace and judge. Not very good for job uh, security. So he and a lot of those of his day fall back on Origen's method of allegorizing Scripture. And so the book of Revelation goes from being in the popular eye of Christianity, it goes from being a book of prophecy, which is what it itself claims to be, and becomes all allegory. That's where we get the phrase, Christ is a king who reigns in your heart. Versus the promise that was made to his mother Mary that he would inherit David's throne. So we go from having a millennium, having a period of tribulation, to different thoughts of, well, aren't we already in the millennial reign? Isn't the church itself a sign of the millennial reign? Aren't you only there because God allows you to be there? Thus we have to be in the time where Jesus reigns. After World War I, there were several theologians that said, well, if we're in Christ's reign right now, Satan's leash is too long. Which brings us back into this idea that in the 1850s, a, general by, a gentleman by the name of John Darby supposedly came up with the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture and a literal millennium all on his own that it was a brand new theology that had never before existed in Christendom. And it was a new thing that had no backing in either scripture or in holy tradition. One of the things that you have to get your head around before we get any further is that the idea of Christ's second coming isn't a singular event. What we call the rapture and the coming day of the Lord in Scripture, both Old Testaments and New Testaments, are treated as two different phases of the reconciliation of the world to, to God. In the rapture, for instance, the saints are transposed. We get our glorified bodies. The dead in Christ rise first, and we all together meet Him in the air as the bride of Christ is taken home. On the day of the Lord, however, there is no transposition. There is no transfiguration. Um, that has already happened. Under the rapture, the saints enter into the kingdom of heaven. However, during the day of the Lord, the bride of Christ returns with Christ to receive his inheritance. The saints return. In the rapture, the earth does not get judged, but the saints of God are welcomed home as the bride is taken to the house of his father. In the day of the Lord, the earth is judged. The rapture can, is imminent, which means it could happen at any, any point in time. There's nothing that precurses it in Scripture. In fact, we're told, we're admonished in Scripture to always be prepared for it. However, the day of the Lord, Jesus himself says all throughout, I think it's Matthew chapter 24, where he says there are these signs that must take place before the, the wrath of God is poured out. In fact, the book of Revelation itself is filled with all of those things. The building of a third temple has to take place. Um, in fact, the rapture, it can be argued, the rapture itself might not be a triggering event necessarily, 
but it, it suggested that when the enemy sees the saints of God are all of a sudden gone, when he also hears the shout, the call of the trumpet, and two point blah billion people disappear magically, that he all of a sudden knows his days are numbered, so he has to ramp things up as quickly as he can. Remember that John, in the very beginning of the book, says that these things must happen quickly. But the word that is translated in English for quickly there uh, is where we get the word for... Uh, um, oh, I'm sorry. It just, just escaped me. Uh, tachometer, meaning in rapid succession. So once things start, once, once the candelabra, once the, the, the lampstand which rep represents the churches are no longer on the temple on earth but in the throne room of God, then things start to ramp up and they happen quickly. But again, there is no precursor for the rapture itself. The rapture, I've got an asterisk by this because I don't think that it's necessarily the case, but it's, it's, there, there are many that will say that it's New Testament only, uh, Day of the Lord is all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It is the most documented time of any other time recorded in Scripture. More references are made to the Day of the Lord than any other single event, including the coming of the Messiah. If rapture affects only believers, the Day of the Lord impacts in some way, shape, or form everybody. The rapture is before the wrath is poured out upon the earth. The day of the Lord at its conclusion concludes the wrath of God. So let's take a look really quickly at some of the passages of Scripture and what the Bible itself tells us about this thing called the rapture. This is an Old Testament passage, and I want you to take pay careful attention to what is underlined as well as just keep those Scripture verses for your own edification during your own Bible study. In Isaiah 26, the prophet writes down in one of his prophecies, Lord, they went to you in their distress. They poured out, they poured out whispered prayers because your discipline fell on them. As a pregnant woman, this is an image that will come back to us. As a pregnant woman about to give birth, rise and cries out in her pains. So we were before you, O Lord. We became pregnant, we writhed in pain, we, we gave birth to wind. We have won no victories on earth. Nothing that we've done on our own has made a difference, in other words. The earth's inhabitants have not fallen. Now this is where things start drifting away from what the prophet is, is telling to his immediate audience. His immediate audience, he's talking about Babylon. He's talking about uh, the coming destruction. He's talking about the, the initial diaspora. But so many words, as you're seeing, is going to come back to us in the book of Revelation. Images of the woman giving birth. Images of, of the, the place that is the earth as a whole, not just the promised land, but the place that the, the, the whole world will give up its dead. As we continue reading... We have won no victories on the earth, and the earth's inhabitants, not the inhabitants of Palestine, not the inhabitants of the Babylonian Empire, the earth's inhabitants have not fallen. Your dead, however, will live. Their bodies will what? Will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth 
will bring out its departed spirits. So go, my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Go into your habitations and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the wrath has passed. Who can build a building that can escape the wrath of God? Can you? Christ, the only person that can build something to shelter us from the wrath of God is God. So when he's telling the people of God to enter into a new habitation and close it, hide yourselves away from a wrath that is going to be poured out upon the earth, what else can he be talking about? For look, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The Lord will reveal the blood shed on it. Remember from the book of Genesis, of, the, of, all, of the, all of the blood upon the earth, I will require an accountant. And will no longer conceal her slain, meaning that all who live upon the earth will rise at some point in time. All will be judged. The difference is that one section will be taken away from the wrath of God and will be sheltered from the wrath of God. The other part of the population will be exposed fully to it. This is in the Old Testament. Isn't that neat? I know that look. Any questions? Okay. So here's some issues with amillennialism. First of all, the messianic promises of political rule of the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, literally translates to Christ the King, have to be completely discounted in, amillennial, in an amillennial view. And that includes the promise made to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The destiny of Israel as the global capital of the earth, the promises made to Israel have to be discounted. This is where we have to talk about the fact that Israel and the church are not the same thing. We are grafted onto the root of Jesse, yes, we are, are, are now partakers in the grace of a new covenant established by Christ at the fulfillment of the old. However, the church is not a replacement for Israel. Israel has a destiny apart from the church. Israel has a place in God's promises apart from the church. Israel still has promises given to it by God that have yet to be fulfilled. So Israel still has a destiny. I hate, uh, one of the things that really irks me is when someone who's a theologian and a brilliant scholar tries to take human nature and apply it to God. We humanize God's love in saying, since Israel didn't receive or didn't accept her Messiah, God turns his back on Israel. Where in the Bible does it ever say God will turn his back on Israel? This covenant shall be an everlasting, unconditional covenant. Israel couldn't get out of it if it wanted to. It is an unconditional covenant made by God, exemplified by his walk in the covenantal agreement in the book of Genesis for which he, God himself would not allow Abraham to participate. So the whole shoulder of every promise Israel made to God, the whole weight of those promises is carried on God's shoulders alone. The same way that Christ carries our salvation on his shoulders. 
Aren't you glad that Jesus has assumed responsibility for your salvation? Because if he didn't, and if it's up to us, then we're all in trouble. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but uh, Israel is promised through the fact that David's throne is now supposed to be the throne of the earth itself. To have a place of prominence still in the coming millennium and beyond. And also, there's the fact that you have to deny the prophetic value of the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Post-tribulation issues. And th this is the idea that the church will enter into a, a literal tribulation period. And then when the wrath of God has been fully poured out on us as well, then we'll come out of it. But that denies the imminency of, of the arpazo. That denies that the rapture could take place at any moment. This basically says there has to be another sign. That everything that leads into the tribulation as a sign has to now be applied to the rapture. It requires that the church has to remain on the world, on earth, during Daniel's 70th week. We're going to talk about that in the next three sessions. And it also tells us that the church would have to experience God's wrath in denial of what's mentioned in Thessalonians 5.9, and by extension, what uh, Christ promises to a set of overcomers as part of those who are identified as the saved in Revelation 3.10. So let's jump there right now and take a look at the position of what represents the church in the book of Revelation. Now remember, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the high priest speaking to the apostle John in what appears to be the holy place, where you have the menorah, you have the table of showbread, you have the veil, you have Jesus in the ceremonial garb identifying himself as our great high priest. So at, this, at the point of time of Revelation 1, when they see the seven-headed lampstand, it is on the earth for, lack, for all intents and purposes. But as we read about the throne room of the universe in Revelation 4 now, John writes, after this I looked up, and there in heaven was an open door. So we're going into heaven. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated upon it. The one seated there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, and a rainbow or an iris, halo, that had the appearance of emeralds surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the 24 thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. This is the part I want you to pay close attention to. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the, front, the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now there's two images wrapped up into one sentence. The first image is the flame of the torch. And if the torch has a flame, then it also has to have a torch. If we're talking about an oil-fed lamp, you have the fire on top, but you have the lamp on the bottom. So if you have a seven-flamed lampstand, giving light, then you have to have, if you have seven flames, you have to have the lamp stand too. So in the word, uh, lampas, which literally means, guess what? Lamp. 
The fires represent the Holy Spirit. What does the lampstand represent? The church. Just as Revelation 1, when Jesus says that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And they give a light, which is, the, which is a reference to the communion that the church of Christ has with the Holy Spirit of God. One of the things that we often uh, don't preach about in the church for some crazy reason that I'll never understand except that we're afraid of becoming Pentecostals is that the, the person of the Godhead who is currently ministering directly to us right now is the Holy Spirit. There is a, a tandem relationship between the church of God and the Holy Spirit of God. When was the birthday of the church? Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was given. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no church. Without the Holy Spirit also, there is no hope. But that's another sermon. Now for your assignment from this past week, we're in Matthew chapter 24, taking a look at what Jesus describes as the coming kingdom. And he's having a, a, um, a briefing, if you will, with his disciples. And they're asking him, when is he going to return? When is he going to return in glory? Concerning that day, meaning the day of the Lord. Anytime you see the word that day, that's what it refers to. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. One of the things that you get out of a study of Revelation chapter 1, too, is that revelation is not the revelation to us. It is the revelation given from God to well, John is kind of a bystander, but the revelation is made to Jesus himself. This is the Son coming into the presence of the Father, and John's witnessing it on our behalf to pin it down for us. Neither angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Now, there are many that look at, at this particular passage of Scripture and say that it's about judgment. It's all about judgment. I want you to consider these things as we're going along. It, is, it does have something to do with judgment, but the person that disappears is not the person being judged. Let's take a look. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving marriage, giving in marriage until the day that Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man shall be. The two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left behind. Two women will be grinding grain with a, with a hand mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if a handowner, homeowner, excuse me, had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If anybody, and this is another part of the pendulum swing 
uh, for premillennials that I wish would really stop speaking as one. Anytime someone claims to know when Jesus is coming back, you can be sure of one thing. That will not be the time that Jesus is coming back. Because right there in black and white, not even Christ himself, when he was giving this teaching, knew. None of us will. None of us, people have tried to put together uh, mathematical charts detailing the difference between our calendar now and their calendar back then, uh, lining up the feast days and so on. But the fact of the matter is no human wisdom can generate the day that the rapture will take place. It cannot be done. You've just read it. So again, and if someone even says, I know this time, and I'm prophetically telling you on behalf of God, this is, then instantly their one strike is someone who claims prophetic insight. They're out. They're done. So what are we talking about when we're talking about the days of Noah? First, this, the time at, at which we are removed as the church uh, will be kind of an echo. The world was filled with sin to the point that the Bible tells us in Genesis that God had repented of having created man in the first place. So the world was filled with sin. And God was resolved to send judgment upon the earth. However, out of his compassion, God saved a remnant by sheltering them away from the earth. By taking both the animals to sustain humanity and humanity, eight people out of several billion. A remnant was sheltered away. And once the remnant was safe, then God allowed his wrath to be poured out where? Upon the earth. The person left behind is not the person being saved. The person who is left behind is the person being judged. And the judgment takes place here, in the natural, on the planet. The hour of the rescue was unknown. I want you to notice also that God himself was the one who closed the ark. God's wrath came virtually immediately thereafter. Now, again, it's said that, um, that the teaching of what we today call the rapture was not known by the early Christian faith. I want to read a little something to you that I found in my uh, commentary of the early church fathers. This comes from St. Hilary of Poitiers. This gentleman lived at about, from uh, 310 to about 367 AD. He writes to us, This teaching means that the separation of the faithful from the unfaithful will consist in one being accepted and the other abandoned. For... Like the prophet says, when the wrath of God rises, the saints will be hidden in God's chambers, but the faithless will be left exposed to celestial fire. Man, for someone who didn't know that the rapture existed, he pretty much sounds like it. And this is fourth century Christian scholarship. The other passage that we were taking a look at, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I know our time is winding down. Please bear with me. We do not want you to be uninformed, dear brethren. And, and this is one of the things that I want you to, to take heart in about God's desire for you, is that he does not want you to live in ignorance of who he is or what his plans are for you. 
All throughout Scripture, very rarely does God hold something back from His children. And that's only because He knows that if we act on it out of ignorance, then we will do something irrevocably damaging ourselves. But on the whole, God gave us those 66 books with purpose so that we would not be uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. The church at Thessalonica was upset because they had people who were dying, who were believers, and they thought that the Apostle Paul had had mispreached to them because they were expecting Christ to come at any moment. And now here were people who were converted Christians who were dying away, and they were upset that these uh, saints who had gone before them had missed the rapture. So Paul is now using this letter to try to explain things to them. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, in other words, by a prophetic word, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep again being euphemistic for who passed on, who are dead. For the Lord Jesus, or the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Again, we're hearkening back to the, the Jewish wedding here. When, uh, in procession, when the groom in procession with his closest friends would approach his bride's parents' house and if they had a trumpet, they'd be blowing it at the top of their lungs or they would be yelling and screaming in celebration. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what can we can get from this passage? The dead in Christ will be resurrected. The living church at that day will then join them. The bride will be gathered to Christ as the groom. And the bride will never again be parted from him. There we will always be. What a glorious image. Now again, from the early church fathers that didn't know about the rapture, we hear from a very prolific one by the name of St. John Chrysostom, who tells us, if he is about to descend, on one account shall we be caught up? For the sake of honor. In other words, for the sake of Christ keeping his promise. For when a king drives into a city, those who are in honor go out to meet, to meet with him. But the condemned await the judge within. John here is is using earthly terms to describe a heavenly truth. If you're in good relations with the king, when the king comes, it's cause for celebration. If you've got back taxes, you might want to stay in the house. But nevertheless, the judgment is coming. That's what he's driving at. Unfortunately, due to time, there's one more passage that I will highlight with you. This is coming from Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5, starting with verse 13. Now remember, Ephraim 
is often used as a nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah for the southern kingdom. And here the, the prophet Hosea, he's trying to tell a truth to the kingdom before it's shattered by Babylon. But his truth has an echo to it that only makes sense in the realm of the future, starting with verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king that he cannot cure you or heal your wound. In other words, you're trying to seek out an earthly authority to help with spiritual destitution. For I am like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I'm mad at both of you and I'm coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. But then he writes this. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he writes this that makes sense for the way that for, for judging an unbelieving Israel but not for judging an unbelieving Israel at that point in time. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. Underline that in your copy of God's Word. Can God the Father ever leave the earth? What do we know about God the Father? Omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. All present, all wise, all knowing. So, how can he depart to his place if his place can't contain him? I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. So, when we're talking about the day of the Lord, just as in the New Testament and as in the Old, when we're talking about the wrath, when we're talking about the popping of the seven seals, Israel remains the focus. When they acknowledge their offense, I will return. In the King James. Israel's the focus. This is an echo of, of, of two diasporas. First to Babylon, second initiated by Rome. God in Christ has left Israel's presence. God in Christ will return upon Israel's repentance. Unfortunately, I see that it's now 8 o'clock. Um, what we're going to do for our next time is take a look at the timeline of events as recorded in Daniel and then echoed in the book of Revelation. The, the, the 69 plus one weeks in Daniel chapter 9. The reason that I'm saying it that way is because you'll notice that um, Daniel's 69 weeks and the 70th week are not contiguous. There's a parenthesis, there's a pause in the middle that we call the church age. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but I want you for the sake of this study, to continue with your notes. Go ahead and, and peruse on your notes. Look at the other scriptures that we didn't cover in this session and read over those for next session. And I really want you, if, if you haven't already,
no matter what time you're listening to this, you're viewing this, um, do not undertake this study alone. Whatever you do, do not undertake this study alone. I appreciate those who have an individual fervor for the Word of God, but please join in someone's fellowship. If you have to make one up yourself, grab a couple of people that you know who have a similar type of passion. Watch these together, do the readings together, and at least have one 30-minute conversation together. This is what I read. This is how it struck me. How is it with you? And notice how the Holy Spirit can speak to both of you. If something occurs as a point of disagreement, don't get mad at each other over it. Listen to each other and try to puzzle out why you've got that different opinion. Maybe it's that one person isn't familiar with the Bible as much and needs to take a look at this other section over here that has something more to do with it. Maybe it's that someone is harboring an old tradition of man in their heart that needs to be removed so that God can speak. And maybe it's just that, um, that God is trying to give them an extra insight that they don't know how to process through yet. But the Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us, but He's gifted us in different ways. So pay attention. Because sometimes if there are things that seem contradictory, if there are things that seem out of place, do your homework together and I promise you, you'll be blessed for the effort. So we'll pick up here next Wednesday where we will undertake what I guess I'll call Rapture Part C. Anything else before we dismiss? I think we'll talk about that next Wednesday. Because I don't want to get ahead of myself because there's a long explanation to that. Basically, the, the, the timeline as it's being constructed is that first Christ will gather his bride to him and then have the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I want you to understand that the wedding feast is not a box lunch. If the wedding feast is one second and then the tribulation is the very next second, then we don't get much of a chance to, to, to experience heaven together. But soon thereafter, the ball is put on the tee. The enemy rises to the surface, becomes known, and then things start to happen in earnest. The tribulation takes place and then it, it's, if, if I take Hosea at face value, when the tribulation comes off in earnest, the people who are left behind, the people who are of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, not individuals necessarily, because we saw in different places, in the book of Acts, 5,000 individuals of Israel become the first Christians. But as, as a... Um, as a nation more or less, as a people, Israel will realize who their Messiah is. 
And again, if we're reading Hosea right, then Israel will cry out to her Messiah. And when they acknowledge their offense, Messiah will return. But again, that's the difference between the rapture, which is the gathering of the church, and the day of the Lord, which is Christ coming to his throne. Right, but we're, we'll get into that next session. Just, just so that we've got time to go through it. But I will get to that. All right, anything from the uh, comment section? All right, please don't be afraid to comment, even if it's a matter of weeks afterwards. We will get notification of it, and we will uh, do our best to answer it in the next available live stream. But if that's all, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of books. Lord, and we thank you for the hope that we have through you, that out of your love for us, though we did not deserve it, you supplied us a way to be rescued from your wrath. You who saved us and who are saving us still, a promise, and we, we, we trust your promise, Lord that on that day we will see you face to face. And on that day we will ever stand and ever glorify your name. So until that day, teach us while we are here to sing as one. Teach us to be your hands and feet. Teach us to make your praise glorious, to make your love known, and to make the gospel available to this world that is steeped in rebellion against you. Help us to be those ministers of reconciliation, those ambassadors of peace. Help us to be fruitful Christians and that the fruit of a Christian is more Christians. Send us to this task in earnest. And may we bring glory to your name and may through us you add to the book of life. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word. And when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.